Welcome to Books Before Liquor and Never Been Sicker. I'm your host, Allison. And I'm Alyssa. And my only qualifications for having a book podcast are a master's degree in literature and literally nothing. Which isn't saying much, you know, but gotta use my degrees somehow, so here we are. I've known Allison for well over 20 years, and boy, do we have some stories about each other, which hopefully will never see the light of day, but who knows, if we get tipsy enough, we might just talk about them. So we'll see. And I'm Allison. I'm an actress based in Toronto. No, you have not seen me in anything. I just really like books. That's why I'm here. Uh, a year ago, actually, in my utter boredom during lockdown, I, I, like many other millennials, thought about starting a podcast, and I immediately knew I wanted to talk about books, because what else am I going to talk about? And I immediately knew the person to do that with was Alyssa, but she was doing her master's at that time, so we decided to start when she was done her master's, so it's a year later, and here we are. So to let you know just a little glimpse into who we are and the type of shit we got up to in our youth. We used to have a theater company called Theater Under the Deck, where we would put on Harry Potter-themed musicals and make our mothers watch and then, like, review them for us. And we had one, I remember, that was a mashup of Harry Potter and Annie. And it was iconic. It was iconic. We forced your little brother to learn the choreography, and we were, like, scrubbing the deck with our little buckets, and it was... It was a beautiful time. It I was. Say, my little brother, who's also the editor and wrote the music for this <laughs> podcast. Thank you, Graham. Thanks, Graham. You put up with so much of my show during the years. <laughs> I am a little bit mortified. You just told everyone that. Yeah, but we met back in preschool when we were like four years old. Mm-hmm. And our teacher was this lovely woman named Miss Cafe. And I remember years later, like we were probably about 10 or 11, mm-hmm. uh, we ended up visiting the preschool again because they opened up a new playground or something. So they were having yeah. a big like grand reopening. And uh, my brother, I think we got invited through my brother because he was the most recent graduate of that school. And so my family went and I brought you along. And Miss, Miss Cafe saw us and was like, oh my God, you guys are still friends. And Miss Cafe... We're still friends. We're still friends. <gasps> it happened. <laughs> We're still here. We are still here. It's been We're... over 20 years. Oh, yeah. We are stuck for life together. Yeah. It's, yeah, ride or die. So for our first episode, we will be discussing The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. First, we want to acknowledge the lands on which we are recording our podcast today. I'm currently recording on the unceded traditional territories of the Coquitlam, Tsleil-Waututh, Katsi, Musqueam, Squamish, Kakite, and Stolo First Nations. And I am currently recording on the lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, and the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. And I acknowledge that the land I'm on is covered by Treaty 13, signed by the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Williams Treaties, signed with multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. And a quick content warning, uh, the Night Circus does deal with themes of uh, depression and suicide. All right, so what are you drinking today, Alyssa? 
Well, thank you for asking. I am drinking uh, an Okanagan cider. It is an apple cider in the theme of the Night Circus. And it came in a black can with a red label, which I felt was very appropriate. So Super appropriate. Yep. I'm living my best cider life today. Thank you for asking. What are you drinking? Um, So I did not think it through nearly as much as you did. I went to the LCBO and went, oh, new beer. That looks good. It's a pineapple double ipa called grand terrestrial rhapsody from flying monkeys craft brewery please sponsor us thank you (laughs) i really like their ipa so i drink them a lot and this was a new one and i'm i've had like two sips and i'm enjoying it so far so great choice perfect it has a very circusy aesthetic it's bright and colorful i mean not night circus aesthetic but circus yeah definitely not night circus but oh well so the night circus so a quick synopsis of the book for any friends who haven't read it in a while or have never read it at all so as young children celia and marco are entered into a competition against one another without knowing who the other is the stage is set as a mysterious circus called le cirque de rêve sorry for my French, a captivating and breathtaking experience set against a white and black canvas. Unbeknownst to them, the game this is a game in which only one can be left standing, but Celia and Marco have already fallen in love, triggering Gasp. a domino effect of dangerous consequences, putting the lives of everyone involved in the circus at risk. And it's very dramatic. The so end. So dramatic. <laughs> and that's our podcast. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we both read this, I think around the same time. I looked it up mm-hmm. in my Goodreads. It was about 2013, I think we read this for the first time. Yeah, my so, book uh, was printed in 2012. Um, the mm-hmm. The original book was published in 2011, so I either read it in 2012 or 2013. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I read it in 2013. Um, so how would you have rated this book the first time you read it? Well, uh, when I was a young one i did not like the high key tragedies um but despite the the tragedy of this book trigger warning for for spoilers um i i did like it i would have rated it probably like a nine out of ten um because i think that the writing was really beautiful and i appreciated the mystery although i definitely noticed a lot more nuance in it now Mm mm-hmm yeah, for me, so I'm the opposite. I loved tragic stories as a kid. Like, what was wrong with me? Les Mis was my favorite musical. I don't know why. Uh, I lived for it, though. So I would have rated it a 9 out of 10. I loved it. Um, yeah, I thought it was really good. But it was interesting because reading it, I could tell there was something about the book I didn't quite grasp as like a, whatever, 16, 17-year-old when I first read it that mm-hmm. I picked up on this time, I feel like. So I was, like, very intrigued about the book, and I always wanted to read it again when I was a bit older, and I'm real glad I did, but yeah. Uh, so what was your experience? We've rated the book. What was your experience reading well, the novel for the uh, first time? Well, I don't remember much about reading the novel for the first time. It's kind of a blur. I mean, I remember really liking it, but I don't remember my reaction to it so much. Um, like, I remember uh, the beginning pretty well but the ending was very new to me even though I had read it uh which was fun but it it was sort of like that uncanny oddly familiar which worked very well with like the mysterious aesthetic of the book so it was kind of exciting Mm -hmm. um to not know what was going on true yeah yeah what about you what was your experience reading it 
Um, so I remembered a lot of the Celia Marco plotline, like most of that plotline I remember. And I think I was really focused on that plotline because it's marketed as a love story between the two of them, which it is. Um, and I kind of remembered the Bailey and Poppet plotline for the most part. But all these side characters, I did not remember. And like, as they were coming up, I was like, oh, yeah, that person. And so that first time I was really focused on those two love stories I guess Bailey and Poppet I don't know it's not really a love story between them but um those were the two plot lines I was super focused on the first time I read it and I loved it I loved uh again the tragic stories loved them uh but it was definitely a different experience reading it this time and ex- I'm excited yes. to get into it. yeah I think that I had such an appreciation for the the subplots and sub characters this time that I did not have before so I'm excited mm, to talk about definitely, it definitely yeah Okay, so in terms of our overall thoughts uh, now, I, I thought that the, the opening lines and the sort of description interlude poemy like little snapshots of circus uh, attractions was really interesting, and it incorporated the reader in a very immediate way because the narrator is speaking directly to you. So they're sort of helping to build this uh, anticipation and this uh, experience that's like almost visceral. There's like a lot of uh, oral descriptions and like scents and also sights. So it's really building this entire sort of circus in your mind, which I thought was really, really great. But it's also sort of dislocating at the beginning because uh, especially in the descriptive parts of the book there isn't really a time or a place referenced and until the very end of the novel you don't really get a sense of how long the the narrative is lasting for as well so you're very Mm -hmm. much like outside of place or time and you're just kind of floating around in these really interesting descriptions which I thought was really cool Okay, so the the actual quality of writing, I would say 10 out of 10, 100% A+. Plus. Good oh, yeah, job. For sure. Loved it. Uh, I, I remembered it being a really beautiful book, which is why I was excited to read it again. Like the, the lasting mm-hmm. impression that I had uh, from when I read the book like a decade ago to now is, oh, it was written really beautifully, but I don't remember too much of the plot. So I was excited to read it uh with like a bit more experience and knowledge and like having read a lot more things since then. And it definitely Mm -hmm. stood up for me. It was like a really, really good read just in terms of the actual quality of the language, but also the crafting of the narrative I thought was really brilliant. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very poetic and descriptive as I've said, but it's very dramatic and mysterious uh, without being too heavy handed. It's, it's not Mm -hmm. overly, like, this is a mystery screaming in your face. It, it's very, like, sexy and mysterious in that it is just hinting that there's more below the surface. It's not being like, look for the clues. <laughs> yeah. So I liked it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the imagery, both last time and this time, that really struck me. That it's, like, the whole description of the Night Circus and the magic that Celia and Marco can do is stunning. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just beautiful descriptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've already mentioned uh, kind of the plot line. So C- the book is marketed as a love story between Celia and Marco, which it is. But I found, especially this time around, it's so much more than that. There's so many subplots. There's so many other characters that make the story what it is. And it Celia and Marco kind of become the driving force in the heart of the story. But there's so much working around them. And we're going to get meta. Here we go. <laughs> It's just like the circus. 
because the circus grows as the competition grows and it becomes bigger than them. Yes. There's so many people involved. There are bits of the circus they don't even know about. Like Celia literally controls the circus and she's like, oh, there's still things I discovered that I didn't know about it before. And yeah, I felt like the narration of all the subplots, mm-hmm. all those characters, how their stories intertwined really worked well with how the circus works too yeah for sure and i mean if that isn't a metaphor for writing in general i don't know what is right you put words down on the page and then they 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 uh create a life of their own and lead to different interpretations Mm -hmm. and ideas Mm -hmm. yeah for sure love that uh, do we take a shot when we get meta is that what we're doing (laughs) meta shots i kind of i like that idea meta shots i'll do it Shots, All right, here shots. we go. I'm just going to chug a bunch of my cider because I don't have tequila here. <laughs> yeah. This is when Graham puts in the nice music. Getting right, too old for this. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. Feel the burn. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's May long weekend as of tomorrow. I'm not teaching. All right, so now that we've gone over some more general thoughts about the whole book, let's get into some specific themes. So you... um. Like, I'm, I have a basic knowledge of The Tempest, so I picked up on the Prospero and the Miranda references, but you had some really interesting ideas with references to The Tempest. Yeah, so... So tell me more. Let's talk about it, because yeah. I have two degrees in English, and I can't not talk about it. <laughs> Fair. So we start off right off the bat with a Tempest reference um, alluding to Prospero, who is sort of the driving force of The Tempest. He's a magician on an island uh, doing his thing. And his his whole magic vibe is that books and literature sort of give him power, um, like words have power. Uh, mm-hmm. And so with the main magician, uh, Celia's father being named Prospero, we're, we're getting the sense right off the bat that maybe he's a control freak. Maybe there is some sort of like literary shade to his type of enchantment. But there's also sort of the idea of Prospero standing in for, like, quote, the author, uh, and the idea mm-hmm. of authorship and writing and story and magic, which is, I mean, it's a theme used in a lot of literature, but because it's explicit here, I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And there's there's explicit references to The Tempest throughout the book as well. Uh, one example being when Celia says that uh, her dad sometimes said, oh, I should call you Miranda, which she always resisted, mm-hmm. because let's give Miranda justice. She was not treated right by Shakespeare. Feminist rant of the no, day. she was not. <laughs> justice for Miranda. Yeah, she was, in, he was, she was described as useless, which I hate. So <laughs> oh, no. Not about that. Shut it down. Yes, but then we also sort of get the level... Uh, in the novel that's not a direct reference to The Tempest, but takes those ideas and sort of works with them, which is that books and magic are linked together. We have books turning into birds and birds turning into books. Uh, Books required for doing magic like Marco's notebooks. Uh, And we have like the beautiful description uh, when Marco turns the, the Enchanter's tent into like scenes uh where there's like trees and boats and oceans made from poetry which is just instant seduction for anybody oh, anybody who likes books I was I'm like, like that's- if anyone 
wants to seduce me propose i don't know what like just a sea of books yeah <laughs> sea that's of that's books thank you very much yeah, yeah. Uh, that's all yeah it's, all you need so i was like i cannot blame her for being seduced by this of course makes sense totally checks i out. also would have fallen for it so, <laughs> i yeah. have been seduced by the books so yeah i i loved that the idea that books are powerful or words are magic um i think that was just a really beautiful sort of layer to add on that wasn't mm-hmm. as explicit as the tempest reference but completely worked with those ideas and gave them sort of a new life in the text yeah for sure and in terms of uh sort of themes of production and performance there are also some really interesting tips of the hat to the idea of the reader or the audience as well uh Mm -hmm. especially one example being uh chandrish who makes a comment on how he watches the audience he doesn't watch the show because he's interested Mm -hmm, in seeing people react to a production. So we have this uh, idea of spectacle and viewership, but also there's a a shade of voyeurism, especially later on with Tsukiko, who ends up watching the circus and knows things, but is withholding information, but she's definitely an observer. So the role Mm -hmm. of the observer or the spectator also takes on interesting connotations. Mm-hmm. which maybe we'll talk about a bit later on as well. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting in the narrative that we got so many different views of the production of the Night Circus. Like, we got the building of it. We got people, Celia, Marco, who run it behind the scenes, people who run it in front of the scenes. We get Papa and Widget, who grew up there and know every corner of it. And then we also get that uh, side narrative of mm-hmm. being an audience member and having no connection to it, and as well with Bailey. So... It's really cool that we get to see so many different angles and sides. Exactly. And especially it. with um, Friedrich Thiessen, who mm-hmm. we we hear and we get little snippets. Um, some of the book sections start with uh, little annotations yeah, of things, of his, things yeah, that writing. he's supposedly written, like articles that he's written about the circus, which I thought mm. was really cool on like a metatextual level. <laughs> right. <laughs> Gonna um, be fancy. Um, yeah, we but have to I- do another shot to get meta again. <laughs> But I I thought it was really, uh, his perspective was really interesting because we have this layer of literature writing about the circus as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's he's watching, but he's also creating content that other people are able to sort of ingest and talk about. So there's this really yeah. interesting culture of like spectatorship and speculation about the circus. So there are many mm-hmm. layers to this night circus onion that we are peeling back and weeping together. <laughs> Peel the onion. Peel the onion and cry with me. Yeah, there are also a lot of darker themes in uh, the book, which I didn't super pick up on my first time reading because mm-hmm. I was a little baby 17-year-old that um, we lived fairly sheltered lives as we kids. We did. Uh, so some of it I picked up on, especially with uh, Tara, but mm-hmm. some of the other ones I didn't uh, pick up on so much. Yeah, definitely. Especially yeah. um, suicide, like not mm, just yeah, not just big. on the periphery, but very much. Uh, I think the first time I read it, I was like, "Oh, how tragic!" Celia's mother committed suicide, uh, mm. and the second time reading it, I realized that there's there's so much um, speculation about the cause of deaths, especially Tara's. And then the mm-hmm. Chandresh's sort of descent into the madness spiral, yeah. and the mental health surrounding that sort of uh, depression or that kind of mm-hmm. uh, mental health struggle. 
And the the idea of suicide is always sort of lurking as a shadow in the background that isn't as explicit later on in the book, but is very much mm-hmm. present, which I definitely did not pick up on when I yeah. read it as a, a mere bebe. But uh, yeah. it, it uh, really shocked me this time because I didn't remember it. And it, but it did deal with it in an interesting way. Yeah, I, I personally felt that the suicide of Celia's mom at the beginning of the book that we hear about mm-hmm. was kind of the one that felt like a bit of a cop-out. It wasn't necessary. It was more that, suicide as plot device. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's used as a plot device to have Celia be wary of falling in love and falling for Marco because she says, I will never fall for someone the way my mother fell for my father. I watched her her. Uh, spiral whereas Tara and Chandrish it was a little more interesting because they're both in positions where they created the night circus they're protected under the spell of the night circus and now that the night circus so like in a production the production team they build the show and then on opening night you let it go it goes out into the world and you're no longer a part of it but because they're still under the spell they're still connected to it they're um like, Tara is the one that really notices, like, they're not aging anymore, and she's really struggling with that. Chandra's, like, can't let go of the Night Circus and move on to another project. And so their spiral of being connected to something that they're supposed to let go was super, was a little more, it was a little more interesting to read that side. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Just, and yeah, Celia's mom felt like the cop-out, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's, I think a lot of depictions of suicide in YA novels or in literature in general can very quickly sort of cross the line between awareness and um, problematic depictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so oh, I sure, think yeah. I think later on when you're you're getting Chandrush's perspective and you're you're seeing his his reasoning and how people keep messing with him, you're very much like more understanding of it than when it uh, when you just hear about it happening um to Celia's mother so mm-hmm. i think that the the inclusion of those issues later on was dealt with i think in a better way yeah for sure yeah there are a lot of dark themes going on like uh yeah we were just talking about kind of the spiraling into depression the gaslighting mm-hmm. i it's did not pick wild. up on oh my god <laughs> i didn't yeah, either between- yeah and we had this discussion uh, in our last recording about is it ever okay to gaslight someone? Yes. If it's for protection yeah. of something else or someone else, which Marco was doing. He's protecting the circus, protecting the fact that, because Chandra says he's picking up on some stuff that uh, the circus was set up to be a competition, the stage mm-hmm. for a competition. He's uh, wiping Chandra's memory of thinking that, but is that okay for the sake of this competition it was also interesting to think about why did the competition have to be so secretive yeah his motives were very suspect and i when i read it the first time i remember feeling like oh of course marco was justified he's he's doing it for the competition and also because Mm -hmm. he loves celia and he doesn't have a choice but i mean as as adults we know everybody has a choice and people have to make hard decisions every day that will affect other people is his choice to gaslight people to the point of one of them dying under suspicious circumstances by the train and the other constantly having his memory erased or repressed? Is that ethical? I don't think so. 
Yeah, because now I lean towards no. Absolutely but, not. <laughs> yeah, but then was he kind of like put in that mindset of having to do that by Alexander? Who? Well, he was essentially brainwashed as a child, which is a yeah. whole other thing. I mean, and the the layers oh, of like child that. abuse in this novel also. So, oh my god! Yeah, so many um, sort of children's or teens books that I've reread recently very clearly deal with issues of emotional and physical child abuse, but never mm-hmm. deal with them in a satisfactory way. Yeah, it's, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's something I'm picking up on that maybe we'll return to in in further discussions in the future. Yeah, it's definitely a common theme that we're going to have to talk a lot Mm -hmm. about, unfortunately, because for some reason, people are like, no one can identify with this character unless if they were abused as children so yeah we have to we we have to have the main character be an orphan one of their one of their step parents or somebody in their life has to be a complete asshole to them cover on the stairs is their bedroom (laughs) yeah get in that cupboard harry i say as i'm speaking in a closet (laughs) recording this (laughs) doing it for the recording oh yeah um so we brought up this game a couple times uh Let's talk about the game. So the game itself, it's a competition, and it's uh, last man standing between Marco and Celia, which they don't know until about three quarters through the novel. Mm -hmm. Although, I'm sorry, how could they not have guessed that also? Right? There's so many times. They're just like, no, there's no, like, it it can take, we don't know how long it can take. And you're like, there's so many hints dropped. And maybe, like, we have the upper hand because it's on the back of the cover that it says it's a last man standing competition or last Mm -hmm. woman standing competition. So we go into the novel knowing that, whereas Celia and Marco, that fact is hidden from them for so long. Like, she has to ask her dad and be yeah. like, hey, is this how this ends? Uh, and Marco as well has to go to Alexander and be like, this is how it ends, isn't it? So, like, yeah, because we, so we don't have that realization because we already knew going into the novel that. Yes, that's true. Yeah, Very so true. that was interesting to watch because to us it seems like it's so obvious that it's this is how it's going to end. But it it also does raise the question of they're clearly both very intelligent, very well-read people. And although the the, uh, magical community, I guess you would say, is very limited in that perhaps there are lots of people who can do magic, as we find out with a certain Mm -hmm. character later on that we'll talk about, but they are very much closed off from it. Their superiors are the only people who know other people in the community, which is also sort of a pyramid scheme. I'm going to talk about this more later. But oh, like, the idea scheme. of being roped into a culture where you don't know anybody else that's a part of it, but the person in charge of you does know about it and knows the other people mm-hmm. it's connected to, that has uh, connotations of this sort of pyramid scheme, Ponzi scheme type issue. <laughs> Which I just find really interesting that they never thought yeah. to question or try and find other people in their community. Right? Yeah, they just trusted the the word of the people. Yeah, because they know there were previous competitions, mm-hmm. and they know there had to have been a previous victor. Yes, but they never they never explicitly we yeah, never we never find that. out. We never see if they actually try and figure out what happened. Yeah. And granted, they're both busy trying to keep this incredible circus running. Yeah, they got a lot on their shoulders. <laughs> they've got a lot going granted. on. Uh, th- it's a forbidden love. It's taking up Especially all their time. at the point they're old enough to start going, hmm, because they're pretty young. I was doing the math in my head. Like, Celia's about 19 when the circus starts, so Marco's yes. like 21, 22 max. Mm-hmm. I think he's two or three years older. Yeah. But, yeah. but there's a lot of references to the 
uh, game being like a chess, mm-hmm, a game of mm-hmm. chess. Yeah, they're either saying it's just like chess or they're saying it's nothing like chess. <laughs> it's either or. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. Um, but yeah, the whole time I was just like, oh my God, the Queen's Gambit vibes. Yes. And also like when Netflix finally does this, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I've been waiting for someone to adapt this. And I think now that's books into series are a big thing. Yes. I think it would make a brilliant series, especially with like a really great like artistic lens Mm -hmm. like the circus could be stunning and ed taylor joy would be so good as celia oh my god there's so many actresses i'm like you would be so good as celia absolutely yes yeah but yeah the whole time was like queen's gambit and a taylor joy if it's (laughs) queen's gambit everybody's obsessed Uh, with chess now (laughs) i started learning chess after that actually i am not good you know i learned chess from a 10 year old prodigy (laughs) <laughs> and he destroyed me and I never played again. The trick is you play online, you uh, make the computer stupid, like you put it on its lowest intelli- <laughs> intelligence level possible. And then my uh, strategy is just to get rid of as many of their pawns as possible. So and then just like chase the queen around until I finally get to his point where they're like, there's no moves left. No one can win this. And I'm like, I'm just going to say I won. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I play chess. <laughs> a draw isn't a loss. It's not a loss. It's so. not a loss. <laughs> Anyways, maybe we should get back to the book. Yes. Okay. So so we're, we're getting these ideas of deception and gaslighting, but also of who has knowledge, uh, who's withholding knowledge, who has access or right to the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's definitely also, because of this, a lack of accountability. People are mm-hmm. performing these magical acts that are affecting so many people's lives, but they're that not the... publicly accountable to their actions. Yeah, that was the biggest thing. One of the biggest things that hit me in this uh, read was uh, that theme of lack of accountability. Mm-hmm. And it, that's such a huge thing in our society right now with um, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, everything that's going on. Uh, we're finally starting to try and hold people accountable for their actions. Mm -hmm. And Alexander and Hector have never been held accountable. They continuously put people in this competition. We see um, Celia and Marco were put in this competition without their consent. They had no idea what was happening or what they were signing up for. They weren't even signed up. Their lives are totally affected by this game and all the other competitors that have played this game before. But everyone involved in the circus, all the performers, everyone built the circus, everyone who goes to the circus, even uh, the... Um, I forget what they're called. The Rivers. group of people that can river. Yeah, they chase the circus uh, to get to experience it as many times as they can. All those people are so deeply affected by what happens to the circus, mm-hmm. and if uh, things played out differently, like many people could have lost their lives, lost their livelihoods, jobs, and Alexander Hector are never held accountable for any of it. It was yes. super interesting to read about, especially this day and age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it also brings up the the idea of immortality because the older people are, I guess, mm-hmm. speaks to sort of a lack of awareness of um, the the mortality of humans, the average lifespan, uh, playing with people's lives because mm-hmm. uh, Prospero and Mister A H or Alexander. Uh, supposedly have lived for a very long time. Yeah, it's very vague. It's about very their vague, age but how... the way. Yeah. That um, later on in the in the novel, the way that Alexander was described as being sort of the teacher of Prospero, and then he sort of broke off, almost had like a Greek vibe to it. The the Greek mm-hmm. like teacher and student, and each of them 
uh, having like a different philosophy and then one of them splitting off from the other. Yeah, true. It it, it had a very Greek sort of uh, idea to me. So I was like, maybe they're super, super old, Um, which perhaps is one of the reasons that they have no respect for human mortality. But... (laughs) Uh, it checks out, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's that's just one of the issues. I mean, there's the whole issue or complication surrounding immortality and ethics and philosophies as well. Like, mm-hmm. if if they're super old, clearly they're not respecting human lives. But shouldn't Prospero, who has a mortal daughter, care about her life? Apparently not. Yeah, it's so interesting that he just because yeah, Alexander goes to an orphanage and picks up the first kid that meets his criteria, whereas Celia is Hector's daughter, mm-hmm. and he puts her into this competition. Even Alexander is like, "This is your own kid. Are you sure? Like, you lost the last one." Yes. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's also a couple of interesting metaphors operating within the game as well, which I think are definitely related. And one of them Mm -hmm. is the game as a metaphor for life, where there's sort of an immortal, all-knowing being who is pulling the strings. We're sort of aware of it, but we don't know what questions to ask. They're not willing to give us the answers. It's a very one-sided dialogue. And yeah, also, it's very existential. Yeah. Exactly, and the the game ending in death, but we never knew the rules to begin with. Life has rules, but we don't understand them. Mm-hmm. And there's also sort of a religious aspect to it as well, or like a religious commentary that that's very similar. That there's this the power that that has the knowledge but isn't willing to share it with mortal people, and again, it ends in uncertainty and in death um and i'm thinking of dumbledore here actually of course uh, big d um we'll probably bring up dumbledore a lot in this podcast gotta, gotta so talk about big ready. d because he, he very much fulfills a similar criteria right he's mm-hmm. ambiguous age very old uh has more knowledge than he's willing to let on is pulling the strings and controlling the lives of other people knowing who has to live and who has to die Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely there are shades of like life is a game and also the game as a, a form of religion almost I think yeah yeah that's interesting it's all very existential I love oh, the yeah. existential angst I'm here for it I love that. we are here for love it. the angst <laughs> all right let's move on to talk to, about some of the characters so did you have any favorites from your first read and have they do you have a favorite from this read. Like you, I was very focused on Celia and Marco in my first read, so I thought that those characters, I think, were definitely my favorites, especially Celia. She's very much the typical young, inquisitive, intelligent, uh, strong Mm -hmm. female lead who we would have identified with and who we are cheering for even if she makes decisions that might not be the best we're still like you've got this girl she's very much like the catness of this story she's very strong female lead well she gains more independence at the end but Mm -hmm. i would say on my read through now with like a decade more time (laughs) just (laughs) learn about the world the characters that i found interesting were very different um but par- partially just because of um, representation, which which I'll talk about in a minute. But I want to hear mm-hmm. about your experience with these characters. Yeah. So, yeah, like I've said many times, I was super focused on the Celia Marco plotline. And um, 
I think Celia was the one I really identified with. Uh, and pop it a little bit, mainly, mainly the red hair. Anytime there's a redheaded female <laughs> character, I'm like, me? Yes. So those were the two. Um, Sorry, can, just to interject, can we talk about how many YA novels have a redheaded female lead? I mean, I'm here for so it. So many. I love it. So many. It's definitely a trope, one might say. <laughs> oh, it, do we have to do a trope shot? <laughs> no, just just drink your beer. It's fine. <laughs> nah, I'm doing the trope shot. You said it. We gotta do the trope shot if you say it. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. I'm just oh, gonna drink one Bottoms up. Ooh. That was fun, all right. Yeah, lots of redheads, mm-hmm. but I'm here for it. Mm-hmm. I like it. It uh, matches I, the aesthetic very well. Also, the red. Yeah, because yeah, the red. Yeah, because they um, yeah, they're born on the night of the circus opening, mm-hmm. and everyone's like, oh, if only for the red hair, they would like be so perfect in the circus. Uh, and then all the reviews. Am I saying that right? Reviews. Yeah. Rivers. Yeah. Uh, they uh all wear a piece of red mm-hmm. on a black plate uh, palette to kind of identify each other. So it's very fitting that there are some redheads. Definitely. In this. Um, but yeah, I think, um, I don't really know if there's a specific character I identified with this time because there's so many different plot lines I was so interested in. Mm-hmm. Again, why I would love Netflix to, or be like yes. HBO, someone to do it because I, with the series setup, you have so much more time to really dive into character backgrounds. Totally. And so I think... I, I would be really interested to learn more about some of these yes. characters. Yes, and sometimes, uh, like, more minor characters and subplots are actually a lot more uh, interesting because they're not quite as traditional and they don't have to fit that narrative yeah. storyline to the same extent. The Celia mm-hmm. Marco plot line is very much i mean it, it, it's still it's a very original concept but most mm-hmm. books follow a very similar trajectory but subplots don't have to have yeah subplots don't have to have the same kind of uh finality or the same kind of introduction it doesn't require as much work it's a bit more mysterious they can generate ideas and thoughts without having to wrap them up nicely in little bows which i think is why they're so interesting and why you can really dig into them Mm-hmm, is because yeah. they don't have to be presented in the same fashion that uh, an overarching plot does. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many characters in this. It's really neat. Yeah. I really liked how many. I, I feel like maybe the last time I read it, I was just at a point where um, in my reading level that I couldn't keep track of so many characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've since read Game of Thrones, so <laughs> that's not an issue anymore. That'll do it. <laughs> That'll do it. That'll teach you how to keep yeah. track of many characters i read this book uh perhaps one listener in the entire internet will relate to this but this obscure 19th century american novel quaker city it's just the most insane book i've ever read uh and there are so many characters that i literally like my brain exploded when i was reading it i had this complex web of characters and it was color coded and it just got to the point oh where God. the page was just a scribble and I couldn't read it anymore. I was lucky with Game of Thrones. There's a whole like 
fandom page for Game of Thrones. So I just, and on Wikipedia, I just had a character list up. So if a character came up and I didn't remember who it was, I'd just look them up quickly. Isn't and be like, the oh, wait, internet so handy? The internet is wonderful. <laughs> was, was like wiki fandoms a thing when this book came out? I, if, it, if it was, I wasn't aware of it. It's very helpful. <laughs> yeah, it's so helpful. Especially for, yeah, those crazy novels that have 600 characters to keep track of. Yes. Um, okay, moving on. So, so should we talk about representation? Yeah, so we both noticed there's more representation than most YA novels and books that we will be discussing on this podcast. Especially of the time. Books. Yeah, of the time. We're reading books from our childhood and our teenagehood and the past. So I was, uh, and I think, I don't know how much I picked on it up on it the first time but this time definitely especially Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. post black lives matter yes stop asian hate me too like um yes there's a a little more representation there still could be more there could always be more yeah but it it is interesting to see we have like very much clearly although not explicitly white characters Mm -hmm. we have Mm -hmm. characters of indian descent we have asian characters Mm -hmm. so there is a lot more racial representation. Mm-hmm. However, the the sort of circle, if we're doing a Venn diagram, picture, dear listener, yes. in your head, a Venn diagram. One circle is racial representation, and the other circle is queer representation. And there are many characters who fit into both, so the two circles are very much overlapped. So Ooh. we also get to the point because Chandresh is just a beautiful, beautiful, dramatic gay boy, and I love him we so much. And Chandresh, yes, and also Sukiko, um, being supposedly a lesbian or uh, at least not straight, and mm-hmm. so we have two characters who are representations of queer culture, but they are also racialized, um, which is interesting because i believe they're the two explicitly queer characters and they they yeah. are both um people of color which which i thought was mm-hmm. just interesting not necessarily problematic but it could be problematic yeah that's a good point mm-hmm. i did notice uh, a lot of, because there's such a mysterious air around the circus and everyone in it there's a lot of room for interpretation mm-hmm. on a lot of these characters of who they are where they come from mm-hmm. Uh, what they look like, who they like. Um, there's uh, which. So again, when HBO and Netflix do the series, uh, I feel like there's a lot of room for interpretation in terms of mm-hmm. uh, racial diversity, uh, LGBTQ plus diversity. Basically, just give us know. more gays. Thank you. We want the gays. That's all I want. That's <laughs> all I want. I just want some cute, more cute gay love stories. Please, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> yes. Please, you. But yeah, I thought for the for the time, it came out in uh, 2011, and mm-hmm. all of the other YA novels I was reading in the same era did not have that kind of representation. Oh yeah, no, it was so all white, all I, straight. Yeah, I think it was really, really great to see that, actually. Mm-hmm, yeah, I, I did, for sure. I did enjoy it, although I'm not sure. I mean, I definitely didn't pick up on the complexities of like racial dynamics when I was reading it for the first time. Yeah, uh, I definitely probably noticed that a couple of the characters were queer, but probably didn't have too many thoughts on that either. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. cool. One thing I really liked about the characters is how they all kind of find their home mm-hmm. and their family mm-hmm. uh, in 
this uh, in this circus, and it brings up that theme of found family, which I think is a really big thing. So I yes. live in a building, uh, an old apartment building. A lot of friends live in the same building as me. Your life is literally the show Friends. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> more people have since moved out over the years because we move on with our lives and things change. But um, for a while, there was, like, multiple of us living in the building. We were living the TV show Friends. Um but we've kind of become this found family. And I think that's a really important thing because mm-hmm. so many people aren't accepted by their families, don't have their families anymore for whatever reason. They've passed on. They don't accept them. Uh, and so this idea of found family is so beautiful. I think that your blood family doesn't have to be your family. If they don't accept yes. you, if they're not around, like you can find a new family. Yeah. And I think all these people in the circus are kind of their stories, it kind of seems like they're a bit lost, and then they find their home in the circus, which was absolutely beautiful, I think. Like, Bailey, for example, yeah. he yeah. doesn't really fit in with his family. Like, his grandma wants him to go to Harvard. His parents want to take over the business. His, he and his sister do not get along. He doesn't really have anyone. And then he meets Poppin and Widget, and they invite him into the circus and his family, and he quite literally runs away with the circus, and I love Yeah, I, I love the... <laughs> he finds his family in the circus. Very yeah. literally taking the the idea of running away to the circus and, and making that more interesting and complex by saying, no, like, okay, let's interrogate the idea of running away to the circus. Why mm-hmm. is that interesting? Because mm-hmm. people are searching for some sort of kinship or community or family, which is yeah. why they go and follow people like them, which is why the reviewers... Uh, follow the circus as well because they've identified each other and they've built a community yeah and so they're they're like following and very much being a part of that family which is why i loved um the scene near the end of the book when bailey is trying to find the circus and he he mm-hmm. comes upon all of these people i love that part are part yeah. of the community and they just in, like bring him in and they're like no come stay with us at our hotel let's yeah, buy you a suit like, no we have an extra room yeah buy you a suit yeah. come to dinner you're with part us. of the oh, family now come with us and yeah. i just i thought that was so great they're like yeah give a fancy boy a suit he's a fancy lad he should have a suit <laughs> you're one of us now you need a suit exactly i love it uh so i just yeah. i just love that so much yeah it's really sweet yeah going off on the fan family thing there um what i really liked was there's many different types of relationships mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. uh, book. So obviously it's marketed as a love story. So we get the love story between Celia and Marco. There's like a hint of one between Bailey and Poppet, mm-hmm. like the tiniest bit. But there's so there's unrequited love between Isabella and Marco, but even um, Lainey and Ethan. There's uh, just like just platonic friendships between Madame Padva and uh, – that's her name, right? Madame Padva? Yes. Yeah. And Chandrish. Ooh, um, but also Chandrish's unrequited love for Marco. Yes, true. Yeah, there's so many. And then there's, we have literal familial relationships between Poppet and Widget. But then, and we see how close Poppet and Widget are versus Celia and her dad, who are constantly butting heads. Yes. I think it was so interesting to see the amount of relationships. Yeah, and a lot of the relationships okay. also have a sort of foil, um, like... Mm-hmm. Uh, Bailey and his sister are the foils of Poppet and Widget, mm-hmm. and and yeah. so we get those sort of interesting mirrors and uh, flips, like the mm-hmm. and the two two the two sisters uh, who are involved in the circus. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, we get our little love triangle. There's always you always have to have a love triangle. 
Although it's another trope shot. <laughs> I don't know. If I can. You know, um, because it's not a traditional love triangle, I'm gonna save your liver and say no. Because How is it not a traditional love triangle? Because there's never any chance that Marco is going to choose Isabel over Celia. It's always yeah, being fair, yeah. Celia. It's very it's much the reader isn't like, oh, I'm Team Jacob or Team Edward. It's that's a good point. Yeah, it has to yeah, be the two of them. Marketed. It's yeah, she's uh, and she even says that later on. She was like, I was just a uh, step in the road. Like, yeah, yeah. It's very much. I would I would say more unrequited love than a triangle, even though there's a triangle shape to this dynamic. Yeah, there's like the little bit of triangle. Yeah, yeah. Just because it's not it's not tropey in the way that it deals which with it, which is really refreshing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But perfect that we're talking about this love triangle. Yes. I didn't realize how steamy this it's book so was. It's so sexy and mysterious. It's very sexy. It's very oh my sexy. god. Like um, like I knew there is that scene where uh, Marco and Celia finally come together. Like I picked up on that. I was seventeen. We knew what sex was at seventeen. Um, but you would so- hope. You would hope we picked up on the, what was going on. But just, like, the flirtation from throughout the whole novel mm-hmm. and just, like, yeah, steamy book. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I was like, I read this at 17. Well, oh, okay. Yeah. and I, I mean, it's very subtle, though, is the thing. It is. And so I'm like, I'm not like, oh, I read this at 17. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and I think I think because this novel does such a great job of demonstrating the line between sexual and sensual, the entire book mm, is sensual. Yeah. It's very sexy, yeah. it's very dark. It has that sort of noir aesthetic, which is very mm. appealing and very romantic. Um and it does have these sort of sexy elements, but because it's more an atmosphere of sensuality, I think it works really well. It's very enticing, yeah. it's very seductive without being necessarily explicitly sexual except for like that one page where it's yeah and it's it's a very nice description it's not like graphic it's just like and then they and then they bang that's the subtext like it's, it's not explicit it's very romantic <laughs> yes up yeah to him. yeah yeah it's not like describing him ripping her bodice off or something so <laughs> yeah no <laughs> me clutching my pearls <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh yeah um yeah, so I know you wanted to talk about some of the significance of the naming. Yes, um, and this this might you're get, the expert. <laughs> this might get a little bit meta again, but I'm I'm so interested. Let's do it in naming in this novel, uh, especially because we have stage names like Prospero or the Enchantress or whatever. We have lack of names such as Mister A H Dash, which is very ambiguous. Mm-hmm. We have aliases like Isabel. We have people choosing a name like Marco. Uh, we have nicknames like Poppet and Widget. So there, there are so many different ways of being named and of naming. And they also rope in these interesting power dynamics. Like, are you named or do you choose a name for yourself? What do people mm-hmm. call you? What does this reflect about you? Yeah. And I think names also act as a defining characteristic or they give somebody the potential to be self-defining like prospero chooses his name because he thinks it makes Mm -hmm. him clever and it sort of one of those tip of the hat things where he's like i'm doing magic in plain sight he's very ambitious and uh perhaps narrow-sighted which is why the name works for him uh Mm -hmm. but i think some characters choosing their names has more power behind it like isabel 
is uh, redefining her life. She went through sort of a ambiguous, tragic backstory, and then she chooses a name and she comes to London, and she's very much in control of her own fate. So yeah. it's, yeah, there's there's an interesting sort of uh, sprinkling throughout the text of the significance of names and different types of names, uh, which I think is also a bit ambiguous, so you can take from that what you will. But I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. There's also quite a big theme of uh, this wonder and curiosity, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to the circus and the um, patrons of the circus. It's uh, even like reading it. I'm like, I want to go to the circus. Where? Oh like, yes. Oh my god! Like again, why I want this to become a series? I want to see it. Like it sounds so cool. It so sounds phenomenal. phenomenal. Yeah, and um, even adults find themselves in this book, find themselves completely entranced by the circus, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. mostly adults. And, like, we don't really get, I mean, we get Pop and Widget as children, and Bailey is, like, a young, what is he, like, nine or ten in that first scene when he breaks in? Yeah, he's fairly young. Yeah, so, like, yeah, we get both the child and the adult's curiosity and wonderment of the circus, which was a very fun side of the book i found yeah yeah and i think reading it as a teen bailey definitely was standing in for me the reader experiencing mm. it but as an adult reading the same book the reviewers were really standing in place for me it's like an adult perspective so yeah, there's there's different points of accessibility i think for people of different ages as well built in which is really interesting um, yeah, and you brought this up a little bit earlier, especially with Isabel. Mm-hmm. There's uh, a lot of fortune telling uh, between Isabel reading her cards and Poppet reading the stars. Uh, and there's a Bridget lot of fortune reading telling people, in it. which is so interesting. Yes, exactly. I thought that was so cool how he does that. But there's also this uh, understanding that there's still free will. So kind of how fortune telling works in this book is that there is a set way of things that is supposed to happen but you still have the choice on if you are going to make the choice that will cause those effects to happen or not so um so there's still this question of free will but the consequences of making a different choice grow more severe so like um the circus when bailey is supposed to join the circus the circus leaving early causes bailey to miss it which could have made the book play out a little bit differently but because he makes the choice to go with them, it plays out the way it does. And he chases, and he makes the choice to chase them and find them. It makes it play out the way it does. Yeah. So I found that super interesting that there's a way things are supposed to happen, but it doesn't always happen like that. Mm-hmm. That was really cool. That's how the book was written. Yeah, and it, it also is a very nice uh, change of pace from the traditional... Uh, magical type novel where the there prophecy. is such an explicit prophe- prophecy or like job mm-hmm. that the the protagonist has to do that is predetermined yeah. and they're just trying to work within the rules that are set for them whereas mm-hmm. this book is very consciously fighting against those constraints even on the level of the characters who are fighting against the rules of the game mm-hmm. so they're they're also fighting against that idea of determinism or um fortune or fate or what have you yeah for sure it's very cool Mm -hmm. and yeah the theme of time is super interesting this because we flip timelines so much between bailey's timeline which is after the marco and celia timeline so we switch constantly and then we get the asides of uh the 
um, the reader sort of inviting or the narrator inviting the reader to experience the circus themselves. Mm-hmm. We constantly flip time and it makes time almost like completely meaningless, which yeah. is really fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because there are certain points in the novel where the timing is ambiguous, but there's also times where it's explicitly pointed out exactly what time it is or what year it is or what day it is. And I also thought there was something so fascinating about the fixation with markers of time, like mm-hmm. watches and clocks. Like yeah. the, the clock is such a motif of the circus, but it also very much represents like one more sort of constraint of the world. The the one thing I guess that magic cannot work against, which is time mm-hmm. and yeah, how uh, time plays into the circus and the idea of the game, but mostly how clocks also factor in to the wonder of the circus because there's this absolutely gorgeous description of this incredible clock that my brain is still trying to figure out what exactly it looks like because there's so much going on. But mm-hmm. I think that also represents like there, there's time is so complex that it's hard to focus on. It's yeah. hard to understand or comprehend. Mm-hmm. And the more you think about it, the more you just want to curl up in a ball and hold right. a hold a blanket and cry yeah. a little bit. <laughs> For anyone who's watched Haunting of Hill House, oh, there's God. this beautiful speech at the end of it about time and how um I think the speech goes like uh time isn't linear it's uh falls around like rain or confetti and i thought this book kind of fit into that metaphor so perfectly that um it was connected by what was the events going on and not the linear of the events does that make sense yeah totally and i I think that the way that the book jumps around between narratives and between time periods also sort of adds to that uh dislocation of the reader that we're constantly shifting around out of place and out of time and then being relocated. And I think that Mm -hmm. also perhaps is meant to mirror the movement of the circus itself. You know, nobody knows where it's going to go. Nobody knows when it's going to appear in a certain place. You just kind of have to wait for it to pop up. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So any other random thoughts you want to end with? (laughs) Yes. Okay. I touched on this briefly before, but just when I finished the book, I was like, yo, the circus is a pyramid scheme, isn't it? Like, the the more you talk about it, I'm like, you're not wrong. No, because, like, the people, there's, like, the big guy who's in charge, but nobody knows he's in charge. And then there's, like, other subordinates who only know the people who are operating on their level, but they don't know what's happening below or above them. And then there's, Mm -hmm. like, like, Chandrash and everybody who's built the circus. And then there's the level of the, the... Uh, entertainers within the circus some of them know what's going on some of them don't and then there are like sort of subcontractors below them there's the level of the audience there are different levels to the to the economy of the circus and i i I don't mean just like a a money economy i mean like a cultural economy but also clearly Mm -hmm. it's like you make money putting on the circus but it it is interesting that there's sort of a pyramid scheme look to this circus yeah you're you're not wrong um, I feel like we had the same thought. Yeah. There's this scene with the labyrinth that uh, Poppet and Bailey went through. And I don't remember if escape rooms were a thing. I by the don't time we remember were, 10 the, years ago. Like, yeah, I don't remember. If, but um, this time I was like, this is just an escape room it that is. they're doing. Yeah. They have to, like, find a key to get out. And Poppet freaks out when she can't figure it out. Um, that was really fun. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there, but oh, I do want to ask you, what tent would you go into? What would tent would you be most interested to see if you could go to the circus in person? Oh, that's such a hard question. I mean, right? uh, my gut says go to the food. Forget the tents. But yeah. <laughs> I know. love the bit where they're talking about cinnamon rolls. Yes, but they're like these new pastry things with cinnamon in the middle of the pastry, and they're rolled up. But yeah, then there's icing on it. I was like, this book rolls? made me hungry so much. I was like, I want a caramel apple so fucking badly right now. I want those chocolate <laughs> mice. Like. like that's why I'm drinking a cider. I was reading it, and I was like, I want a cider so badly like work so well yeah Yeah. so i think food first but then maybe that one of the tents that i was super interested in on sort of a an aesthetic and intellectual level was the the tent that contains all of the jars and vials with the scents that uh, Mm -hmm. evoke certain memories that we later on find out um celia has helped uh widget widget translate stories of people's lives that he reads on them to scents that evoke memories and i'm just so Mm -hmm. fascinated by the idea of memory and the the connection between scent and memory, which is always so visceral, like your whole body feels the memory, which is so interesting to me. And it's yeah. uh, very like transporting, uh, which I thought mm-hmm. was interesting. I know that um, when Bailey goes in there, he has sort of a strange time experiencing these stories, but I think- Yeah, some of them are good, some of them are not good. Yeah, some yeah. of them are jarring, but I think that that's also very much like- to, to if I can't hit this nail hard enough on the head, gonna talk about it one more time. But the the metaphor of the the narrative and the the representation of stories and uh, mm-hmm. the communication of stories and the ways that we can evoke and communicate uh, different tales and Widget is very much doing that. Like he's translating stories into mm-hmm. a different medium, yeah, uh, for experience, which is just so fascinating to me. So maybe I would yeah. go in there and smell some things. I don't know. <laughs> Give it Who a knows? sniff. Yeah, I don't. I honestly don't know. I think I would be that person that goes to the circus like every night for a week mm-hmm. just to like. I would want to see everything. Totally. Like my gut is like I would want to see Celia be the magician. I would love to see her tricks in person. But um, uh, the other one I liked was the wishing tree. That's a big yes, one. Yes, yeah, Marco I love that. that. Yeah, that would be a beautiful one to go see. Mm. I totally changed my mind. I know which one I would go to. <laughs> the pool of tears. The oh. the one where like you pick up the rock and then like all of your anxiety goes away when you put the rock in the water. I oh, need that, that so nice? badly right now. <laughs> like my anxiety is nice. off the hook. And I just want to put my little stone in the pool of tears and let it just go away. True. I think that would be fantastic for me. Yeah. <laughs> there, um, but there's so many I good have... tents. It's hard to say. There is, yeah. This thought I have kind of connects back to... Um, Aaron Morgenstern's brilliant writing of the book Mm -hmm. uh but there's so much suspense in it Mm -hmm. at the right place like there are a couple moments without giving too much away we don't want to spoil anything major for anyone um there's so many suspenseful moments and they're so cleverly crafted and well written yeah there's just the right amount of foreshadowing so you like sometimes it's too heavy-handed but in this case it's just so clever right yeah oh brilliant yes yeah there's a part, no spoilers, but there's a part with a dagger, and it's very good. I cried. <laughs> I had so many feelings. All right. So after all we've talked about, how would you rate the book as an adult now? Yes. Okay. So my rating 
would be a 10 out of 10 now. Let me justify this to you. So writing quality, (laughs) 100%. Ability to craft a masterpiece of mystery and seduction, 100%. Gorgeous. You took me there. You You took me there. You wanted me to go there. I want you to make a Netflix series about it. Let's get this going, people. Make the Netflix series, Make it. Um, yeah, it was, it was better than I remembered, um, clearly because my rating is a little bit higher this time, but mm-hmm. I think just because I'm bringing so many different experiences and perspectives to the book, and also I'm just like a smarter reader now, and I picked up on a lot more and noticed so much more nuance and just found new things interesting or meaningful, um, and it, yeah, it was such a different experience. I have mm-hmm. rarely read a book and th- had such a sort of shift even though even though i liked it before um but i thought it was just really really well written and i enjoyed Mm -hmm. the mystery right yeah i'm the same i would i would also give it a 10 out of 10 and uh yeah i don't think i've ever read a book where i reread it and liked it as much but for very different reasons Mm -hmm. than the first time i read it and like you said like we um have lived our lives a little more we have more experiences more personal experiences we're smarter readers now um and there's more nuances we can pick up in the book that i didn't pick up the first time and um i on i will be reading this a third time someday oh definitely maybe soon (laughs) i was looking at my copy and even though i've only read it twice now it is quite worn i guess the quality of the paperback that i bought wasn't super good i was like should i look for like a collector's edition hard cover of this book and then i was like do i need to spend money on another edition of a book that i already have an edition of because i do this i own there are some books that i have three or four copies of different editions of which is that's a that's that's a grad school problem first of all like that's just an occupational hazard but second it's a problem like it's definitely okay here's a little glimpse into my insanity (laughs) sitting next to my desk is my special bookshelf and on the special (laughs) bookshelf there is a special shelf and the entire special shelf on the special bookshelf is my emily dickinson section and i think i have one two four five six at least six or seven editions of her collected works and they're all different and there's a reason for this but (laughs) the reason is i'm crazy but um my point is you can buy six or seven editions of the same book and it's not enough it's not i remember i remember one christmas like i was shopping for you and i texted you something about like are there any any Emily Dickinson's novels or books you want? And you're like, I have all of them. Don't bother. Go with something else. Go with another idea. I mean, I have yeah, I have so many books on that. But um, that's fair. Yeah, you- I'm uh, a bit the opposite. I um, I used to be a bit of a book purist where I was like, you cannot break the spine. You cannot. It must stay store bought quality the whole time and now I'm like I don't care I will write in it like I'll probably read again highlight my favorite parts I've already like flagged down some scenes of the book that I'm like I want to read that again I like that scene yeah no for sure I mm. I used to not like fold pages in my books I, I mean I don't do that I use bookmarks now but our sticky notes but I write in my books now and I never would have done that 10 years ago I have changed yeah I'm the type of person who writes in my books now so yeah fair it's a life choice it's a big decision um to leave uh us on a note i was wondering would you recommend reading this book the age we read it 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I think when I read it as a kid, I, d- I didn't take anything like uh, harmful from it or anything, despite like yeah. the the dark themes and the mm-hmm. the sensuality. Like I didn't necessarily pick up on some of the the darker, more mature aspects of the books. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I think it was totally suitable for me to read it whatever yeah. age I was 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, but I was so young. But um, I, I would say I definitely got more out of it reading it as an adult. Um, I would let somebody who is in their mid to late teens read it if they were, like, a, a smart reader and could handle... Mm-hmm. Uh, more like complex mature themes but i would say the prime age to read it would be in like your in your 20s or or beyond just because you'll mm-hmm. get a lot uh more stuff yeah. out of it yeah at first i was uh my first thought was uh it's better for someone who's a little more uh, a teenager who's more ready to handle those themes mm-hmm. but is this a good introduction to some of those darker themes. Well, that's they're... that's a great question. There are lots yeah. of books who have similar themes that deal with them in way worse ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like this way, like it's very elo- eloquent. Eloquent. I've had too many shots. To eloquent. Say this word. Thank you. I was going to say eloquently. Is that a word? Yeah. Okay, great. It's a word. Um, eloquently written, mm-hmm. like the um, kind of sensual side of it, the darker themes. So I feel like this might be a good introduction to some of those darker themes. To yeah, talk definitely. About them and start reading about them for the first time. Yeah, and I, I think it does a good job of including those ideas in a way that is mostly ethical, but without being preachy. So I think mm-hmm, yeah. I think I think that I I think it's a good introduction into some of those ideas, especially like uh, mental health and and things like representation. Uh, mm-hmm. Which I think a lot of books these days are doing a good job of, but I also haven't read a lot of uh, contemporary novels for this. Yeah, I've kind of gotten out of the YA scene yeah. in the past few years, so I'm not really sure what. I don't like know what the, the kids are reading these days, but they should read this book. Honestly, we'll probably uh, run out of books at some point, so <laughs> if this goes on long enough, so we'll read them. All right, well, that brings us to the end of our review of Night Circus. Hopefully our thoughts were semi-coherent and... I hope so, I, especially two shots later and half a beer. entertaining. Go get yourself a caramel apple. Practice self-care. Build a circus <laughs> in your living room. All you need is a blanket and your imagination. Oh, yeah. That's your prescription for the week, folks. <laughs> Build yourself a circus in your dreams. Thank you for listening to Books Before Liquor Never Been Sicker. Hosted and produced by Allison Wall and Alyssa Bridgman and edited by Graham Wall. You can find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under Books Before Liquor and Never Been Sicker. You can also email us at booksbeforeliquor at gmail.com and follow us on our website at booksbeforeliquorneverbeensicker.ca. And join us next time when we get lit with The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis.